Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Cheryl Atkinson here with a very special guest you haven't heard from before on our podcast. It's Nolan Peterson. Hello, Nolan. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Nolan and I, well, he's going to talk about Ukraine. He's a former combat veteran. Special Forces, do they say Special Forces or Special Ops? Special Operations, okay. pilot. Yeah. Okay, and he's been spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine. We're going to talk about that. But first, I thought we would mention how we met, because you were kind enough to call me to do an interview when I left CBS News. This must have been 2014. It was. And you were working in Sarasota, Florida? I was writing for the Sarasota Observer, the local newspaper in Sarasota. And I'm from Sarasota. Did you right. know that? I did. That's That was the angle. That's okay. why they wanted us to do the story. So we did a little interview, and then did a year go by, and you contacted me and said, I quit my job. There's something else I want to do. Right. So... I had a desire to become a war correspondent, and to help launch that career, I started a little, a little uh, startup news news organization called Blue Force Tracker, where we employed a lot of military veterans to help cover stories about, about conflict around the world, and we asked you to contribute to some of our reporting, and we did some great stories, and you helped certainly spread the word about what we were doing, and although it didn't work out in the end with Blue Force Tracker, it was a great learning experience for me. And actually, Blue Force Tracker led me to go to Ukraine for the first time. So how did you segue from doing the journalism kind of thing domestically to doing the foreign coverage? Well, I think I originally started covering military issues in the United States as related to military culture and whatnot. But I definitely had a passion and a desire to get abroad. And I think for many people in the military, when you come back home from Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or, or wherever, you come back and you kind of get this glazed over look in people's eyes and you try to describe to them what the reality of the world is outside our borders. And so I thought that as a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I had a story to tell. And I actually see it, this might sound a little bit overpassionate or whatever, but I think that journalism in essence, is as equally important to our democracy as what I did as a soldier. People need to know what's going on in the world. They need to know the threats that face our country. And I think that former military members have a unique ability to instruct and to educate people about those realities because they've seen it firsthand. Well, what drew you to Ukraine at the time of all the places that you could have picked? Because we have a lot of activity, obviously, in the Middle East. Right. And so in the summer of 2014, it was a very busy summer around the world. That was the summer of the Sinjar massacre in Iraq. There was a war going on in Gaza and the war in Ukraine began. And essentially, I was looking at those three conflicts, trying to decide which one I should go to. And what tipped the sort of what led me to Ukraine was that I had a friend working in Ukraine, a pilot with whom I had served in Afghanistan. He was working at the embassy in Ukraine. And he was describing the situation in the country about tank battles and artillery barrages. And from my vantage point in the United States, it just, it seemed crazy because it was, that reality was not being transmitted through the news to me back in the United States. And so I really felt like that was an underreported story that needed to be told. And sure enough, when I got to Eastern Ukraine that summer, I saw for myself, I remember sitting on a hilltop in the coastal city of Mariupol watching a tank battle, opposing tank forces shooting at each other like out of a World War II movie. And then you go and you scroll through your Facebook feed back home and nobody 
is aware of this and it's just crazy. Well, I would say even today when you reminded me there's still a ground war going on in Ukraine, I wasn't sure about that. I don't hear reporting about it. Ukraine is all over the news here, but I don't think anybody mentioned that. So there is shooting going on today, you would say, in Ukraine between Ukrainians and Russians? Correct. So in 2015, there was a ceasefire signed in the war. Uh, so to even back it up further, Russia invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014 after Russia had invaded and seized Crimea from Ukraine. Ukraine fought the war to a stalemate, and the, the conflict has essentially become a, a trench war in the Donbass for the last five years. Like World War I-style trenches, as crazy as that seems, where the, the two camps are trading artillery and sniper shots at each other every day. But the bottom line is there is an ongoing land war in Europe. And I think another aspect of this story, which people don't talk about, is that since 2014, Ukraine has rebuilt its military into the second largest military in Europe. They have 250,000 active duty soldiers right now. And so when you look at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the two largest militaries in Europe are exchanging fire every day. And my worry is that it just takes one unanticipated act, one unanticipated escalatory act that could spark a much larger war. Also, the three Baltic countries of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, they're the most rapidly militarizing countries on Earth right now due to the Russian threat. Poland is massively increasing its military spending. So throughout Eastern Europe, the situation is becoming really tense. Are you grouping part of Russia in with Eastern Europe when you said two of the largest militaries in Europe? Yes, okay. so I, that would be including Russia. All right, stupid questions because people don't know this stuff. Some people listening might, but I think most people don't. Is, is this war basically because Russia is afraid Ukraine will get too close to Europe and somehow pose a threat to Russia? From the Russian viewpoint, what is their fear? What you just said is the advertised reason by Moscow that they are opposed to Ukraine going to the West. Moscow will say that they don't want you know Ukraine joining NATO or developing closer ties with the United States because it might pose a strategic threat to Russia. What I believe, however, is that Russia sees a Ukrainian democratic success story as a threat to their grip on power. I'm talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. He knows that if Ukraine is successful at becoming a democracy, about having a free market, about opening up freedom of the press, all these things which the Kremlin is opposed to, and Ukrainians' lives improve, that's a threat to the totalitarian regime of Vladimir Putin. That reminds me of something when I was in Europe covering Brexit recently. There were people there, you know, Europeans, who said, quite frankly, if they, they think that if Great Britain leaves the European Union and is seen as being successful, other countries will follow suit, Germany, France, Italy. So I know this is totally different. We're talking about a war, but I, I see what you're saying when they fear that if people see success being had by people of another nation doing something, it certainly puts fear in the hearts of those who don't want it to happen. Yeah, and in, you know, in Ukraine, the ma a majority of Ukrainians have family in Russia. And Russians and Ukrainians are very connected, particularly the millennial generation through social media. So Russians are really aware of what's going on inside Ukraine. And in many ways, life in Ukraine has gotten uh, measurably better since 
they turned away from Russia and turned toward the West in 2014. For example, you, Ukrainians can now travel throughout the European Union without a visa. Russians can't. Uh, and within Ukraine, you're seeing this flourishing of democratic civil society. New news outlets are opening and up. There's anti-corruption reformers who are really leading the way in cleaning up the country's act. So I think as Ukraine advances and as life progressively gets better for Ukrainians because they've turned toward the West and they've embraced democratic values, I think Russia's, Russians are seeing this and that erodes the, the line by Russian President Vladimir Putin that he is necessary for the Russian people. All right, so a confusing, another confusing facet to me is clearly we, the United States, we're on Ukraine's side. Mm-hmm. Is that because we're against Russia or because we've looked at the issues and we just believe in what we think Ukraine is moving toward? Like, what is the historic idea behind our support for Ukraine? I think in the context of the current conflict, I mean, without a doubt, we want to support Ukraine because Russia invaded a sovereign country for no good reason. So just for the sake of international peace and stability and to transmit to other countries like China and Iran that that kind of behavior should not be tolerated, we need to stand up for the Ukrainians to to help them defend themselves. But also I think that, you know, Ukrainians look toward our country as the inspiration in their fight. They want to achieve the American dream. That's what they're fighting for. My my wife, who is Ukrainian, her her lifelong dream was just to get to the United States and just to see it and to have one fraction of the opportunities that most of us take for granted. That's what Ukrainians want. And I think for the United States, we need to prove to Ukraine that they made the right decision. And protesters in 2014 stared down Russian snipers on the Maidan, Kiev's central square, to overthrow a corrupt pro-Russian regime. For the last five and a half years, Ukrainian soldiers have stared down Russian tanks and artillery for the sake of their freedom and to have a democratic country. We need to prove to Ukraine that what they're doing is worth it. And that American support for Ukraine also sends a very strong message to the protesters in Hong Kong, the protesters in Iran, the protesters in Iraq, who are all also out there protesting for a democratic way of life. And I think that I'll diverge real quick, but one of my favorite lines from Ernest Hemingway from his book, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is, if we win here, we will win everywhere. Speaking about the Spanish Civil War. And for me, I think that's the bottom line reason we need to care about Ukraine. Okay, so back to complicating factor. We see or we're generally hearing the Ukrainians portrayed as the good guys to oversimplify and the Russians portrayed as the bad guys. But in the same breath, almost everybody says... Ukraine is still mired in corruption and is notoriously corrupt, not just connected to, not only its Russian connections, but just independent of that. So how do we reconcile knowing as a nation perhaps that we need to and want to support Ukraine, but also knowing you can't just throw everything at this country as if it's 100% good and there's nothing to worry about, there's no corrupt people. I think my response to that notion, and I, of course, there is a lot of lingering institutional corruption in Ukraine. And after, I, I'll tell you, I've lived in Ukraine for six years. In a lot of ways, too, just sort of the daily chores of life require a bribe. It's a legacy of the post-Soviet system where, uh, you know, the government essentially collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed. So you the need to get collapsed. something processed or something done you have to pay If you for. want to get a residence permit or you want to get married, 
those sorts of things require a bribe. You kind of grease the palms. Exactly. Grease the skids, so to okay. speak. Um, but I have to say, after being in Ukraine since 2014, the country has made huge strides in fighting corruption. Huge. Night and day difference in the last five and a half years. Do you credit that to any in particular administration? Because now we know there's a newish president who's in there. Where does he fall in line with all of this? I credit it to the Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian society. So in 2014, when Russia invaded, everyday Ukrainians went out to the front lines and they fought back the Russian invasion. And once the war settled into a sort of a static trench war stalemate, a lot of those soldiers went back home and they launched anti-corruption civil society movements in their hometowns. And so I think the the really incredible thing I've seen in Ukraine in the last five years is in, is in the, at the local level, at the grassroots local level, you're seeing the rebirth, or not rebirth, the birth of a democratic society, the democratic civil society, where war veterans are out there fighting corruption, demanding that their local governments fix potholes in the road. You know, they to do the little things that we take for granted that happen at local government level, the war veterans in Ukraine are pushing through that change. And so I've seen a huge difference in corruption on that level, but also the government has done a lot to to open up, you know, the, for example, the military industrial complex has become a lot more transparent. So from my perspective, it just seems weird now to withhold military aid from Ukraine after they've done so much, like they are fighting corruption and they've done a lot to fix the corruption so why now? We should be rewarding them for all the good things they've done, not to mention the fact that they've essentially been fighting our war for us for the last five and a half years. So why now do we punish them for corruption when in fact they've done so much to achieve what we expect out of them? Well, haven't, have we now released what was held? I mean, they're not being punished now, right? Correct. All the aid has been released. So I will just make the counterpoint that and, of course, in the impeachment hearings, we only heard the prosecution side of the case. We didn't hear the defense. But I will tell you what the Republican side have said, which is President Trump simply didn't know. And as, as a president who really is hands-on with this stuff and doesn't just listen to and take the advice of what everybody around, obviously, is saying to him, he wanted to measure up um, President Volodymyr Zelensky and see if this was the real deal in his view. And, obviously, everybody around him was telling him, it was, except perhaps Rudy Giuliani. But I will also point out as a counterpoint, they've been wrong. You know, some of these diplomats are the same people that didn't see Russian interference coming in, coming in 2016 and so on. So I'm not sure it's as outlandish to me that a president wants to look at a country like this and say, I want to measure up the guy. On the other hand, yes, you say critics, critics would say and have said the very point that you made. This is a time when they brought in somebody that has a lot of high hopes that, the, that ran on an anti-corruption platform. Shouldn't the president really, president of the United States, be getting behind him and propping him up and giving him that attention in front of his own people? Right. And I, listen, I, I certainly endorse the notion that any help the United States gives to Ukraine or any other foreign partner for that matter should be tied to that country living up to certain benchmarks. Conditions. Exactly. And then we, we, we should do that because we want, if we're going to give weapons to a country, we want to make sure they're well, using them. I think for the we right pretty reason. much always do. That's That, that right. was something people don't understand. Foreign aid comes with strings attached. There are quid pro quo, if you want to call them quid pro quo or conditions typically 
it's more controversial when a president or an administration does not tie things to some sort of behavior performance. Yeah, I think, so I certainly understand the need to hold a country accountable if it's receiving U.S. assistance. What what troubled me just in general was that the with the withholding of U.S. military aid was so public and that sends a really strong message to Moscow that the durability of U.S. support for Ukraine may not last in the future. And also, I think it's troubling that Ukraine is now becoming a partisan issue where that you know, Republicans may be inclined to see Ukraine on par with Russia as far as, you know, interfering in the U.S. elections, allegedly. Uh, and that's unfortunate because I really think that if there's one issue in the world that I think Americans of all political stripes should unite around, it's a post-Soviet country that's fighting for their freedom and fighting for democracy. And I feel like that's a truly, like, a story that should be universally embraced by all Americans. And it's unfortunate that because of this impeachment inquiry and how Ukraine is being used by both sides for political gain, that I think that there's a real chance that uh, that sort of bipartisan support for Ukraine may erode in the future. And a little bit of analysis from me, because I have looked at this in recent days, I've been writing some things that'll be published soon. Um, Republicans, at least at the hearings, never put Ukraine on par with Russia and corrected that misconception that was put out by Democrats who claimed right. that was the case. I never heard anybody say it, and then they explicitly said the opposite. They explicitly said it is not on par, and they went on the record at the hearings to say that. But they did say there were concerns, and there's differences of opinion as to how big the concerns should be and who knew what about it. Um, I want to ask you, though, something I thought was interesting. I've looked into the Foreign Agent Registration Act filings. You know what those are, Farah? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, virtually every country, A to Z, Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, lobbies, they hire foreign agents here in the U.S. to lobby for them. And for a story maybe two years ago, I looked at all the Russia lobbying and all the Ukraine lobbying, just, you know, to quantify it, what companies are doing it, what officials are doing it. Fascinating. And both, of course, are lobbying furiously. I was trying to kind of see, are the Russians more lobbying the Republicans and the Ukrainians more lobbying Democrats? There's a lot of crossover. I'd say in general yeah. that's, that maybe was true, although there's crossover. So I looked recently again. I'm going to start to add up and look. But on these summaries they provide to Congress about who's lobbying whom and how many companies they've hired here in the U.S., what polit former politicians they've hired, most countries have maybe a page of disclosures. Here's who, who we've hired. Right. Ukraine, the last summary I looked at, which is maybe a year and a half old, the, the, the disclosures lag behind real time. They have the longest by far pages. I think it was five or six pages. Wow. And I think Turkey was pretty close to them, you know, compared to most other countries having one page, maybe two. So I just thought that was interesting that we can assume in the past couple of years, based on that, that Ukraine has been dumping a ton of money. I don't know if they're pro-Russian interests in Ukraine or anti-Russian interests in Ukraine or a mix of both. But a lot of money is coming into our political system. Definitely anti-Russian interests in Ukraine. And I think it'd be really fascinating to look at that and to see the start date for that lobbying when if, if those lobbying efforts are a carryover before 2014. Because remember, in 2014, yes, I, Ukraine had a pro-Russian president. So now yes. Ukraine today is, you know, you know, like a yin-yang difference from what it was prior to 2014. I will tell you that when I looked back at the older records, Russia and Ukraine were 
seem to be somewhat on par until the invasion of Russia in Ukraine. And then the Ukrainian lobbying picked up, and some of that was pro-Russian interest, and some of it was not. I wasn't able, you know, they disclose some of it, but they don't, sometimes they don't put the money down there, sometimes they do put the money down there, so I couldn't really quantify exactly how much, but a lot of activity. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to note that, you know, for Ukrainians, as they are engaged in a, a land war with Russia, they really see the their friendship and their partnership with the United States as the most powerful diplomatic tool they have to keep Russia at bay. They think that if Russia believes that the United States has Ukraine's back, Russia will not outright invade Ukraine. So I would, you know, I don't know the specifics of the lobbying uh, that you've, you've mentioned, but my gut reaction would be that's probably sort of a, a do or die attempt by Ukraine to try to get the United States on their side. And to secure that American help. I know that Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, uh, who was president for the duration of the beginning of the war, he really wanted the javelins. He really wanted the United States. Which is States. the lethal aid, what Correct. they refer to as the lethal aid. And they aid. had been pushing the Obama administration to deliver on that, and the Obama administration never did. Because why? They were just worried it would incite I, Russia I think, somehow. long story short, they were, they were afraid of escalating the situation with Russia. But, you know... And then Trump came in and gave them that aid. Correct. But I think you know, one thing, too, that, you know, one misperception I've heard a lot in the impeachment inquiry is this notion that Ukraine's war effort against Russia is somehow going to collapse without U.S. military aid, which is far from the truth. Not based on what I've seen on the front lines over the last five and a half years. Ukraine is the number 12 weapons exporting nation in the world from 2014 to 2018. So the four years of so the they war. they built a lot of stuff there? They, they built a lot of weapons. A lot of big ticket things like armored personnel carriers, tanks, missiles, rockets. They make their own anti-tank missiles like the Javelin. Um, and they a lot of those foreign sales they use to fund the purchase of things that they can't build at home. Why do they need our Javelins if they make that? To be totally honest, they don't need our Javelins. They just wanted the they, commitment they to show. They need the diplomatic show of force gotcha. by the United States. So I think an important point is that if U.S. military aid ends, Ukraine's war effort will not collapse. U.S. military aid certainly helps Ukrainians on the front lines with things like night vision goggles, counter-battery radars, thermal imaging. Those things are really useful to Ukrainians. But, for example, most of their ammunition is still coming from Soviet-era stockpiles. It's not like we're sending them bullets and shells. I mean, they have their own stuff to fight the war with. But that aid most importantly sends, like I mentioned, a message to Russia that the United States will not tolerate Russia escalating this conflict any further. And so I do worry that by even temporarily withholding the aid, you're sending a bad message to Russia. That maybe, you know, there's a little crack in the... Exactly. That may, or maybe that could alliance. entice Russia to, to test that relationship more. Maybe Russia would want to escalate the conflict and see if America will step back in. On the other hand, I think Two, Ukraine now has a wake-up call that they need to make sure they continue to fight corruption because uh, obviously the continued support of the United States is contingent on Ukraine fulfilling its promises. Last question along this thread. You've been great explaining all this. That's what I love <laughs> I about so. you, Nolan. Um, one of the Democrats' witnesses, an ambassador, former diplomat, said that the Ukrainians, right before our last election, bet on the wrong horse. Essentially, I think they thought Hillary Clinton was a shoe in 
And in the words of the diplomat, we're trying to curry favor with her, which of course couldn't have made the ultimate winner, President Trump, very happy when he looked at, at that history. Is that something that you think, you know, is hard to repair or what, how do you view that? Right, so I think, first of all, like there's no comparison between whatever reservations Ukrainians may have had about Trump with the Russia's concerted, nationally organized campaign, military campaign to interfere with our elections. But yes, I think, you know, I think the this whole this whole episode now that Ukraine is being portrayed as having meddled in our election, it shows the dangers and the pitfalls of any country thinking that they can support a a president in an election who probably be, better to just stay out of it. <laughs> better to stay out of it. I think obviously some of the statements that I think President then candidate Trump mentioned about, you know, Putin and trying to reconcile with Putin certainly worried some Ukrainians. And then there was the relationship of Paul Manafort. Uh, Trump's former campaign campaign manager at the time. Right. He, who had clients in Ukraine that were pro-Russian. Is that correct? He, Manafort helped to rehabilitate the political image of Viktor Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russian president who was overthrown in Ukraine's 2014 revolution. Yanukovych was the one who sent snipers to gun down more than 100 Ukrainian protesters. So they so, rightly were concerned, perhaps, that, hey, if this is the guy who has Trump's ear, he's not going to be on our side. He's going to be on Russia's side. Right. So I think just for, for the Americans trying to make sense of all this, from the Ukrainian side, you have Paul Manafort, who worked for Yanukovych, who murdered 100 Ukrainians, you know, mainly like university students are out there protesting, and they see Manafort then on Trump's campaign. It certainly sent a, a troubling message to Ukrainians. Now, I don't think that necessitates or excuses anything, any nefarious activity that may or may not have, have happened. But um, yeah, I just think that now they are dealing with the fallout of what was most certainly a political misstep. I, I would just want to add a little campaign tidbit here. When I interviewed President Trump one time and after the Manafort mess, I asked him who recommended Manafort to him. Uh And he kind of just said he didn't want to say because he didn't think the person who recommended Manafort had ill intentions. But you almost have to, it almost looks like Manafort was placed there by somebody who was then going to be able to see all this stuff that had happened. Manafort was already controversial. And he was only on the Trump campaign a very short period of time before all of this came to light. But I just think that's really interesting that he was there at all. Yeah, I mean, of course... I wouldn't want to speculate, but it, it does seem fishy, and it certainly would be in Russia's favor to have somebody like Manafort placed at a high level in the administration. So it's certainly not outside the bounds of possibility that that was a concerted Russian attempt to develop some sort of avenue of influence, which failed, obviously, because Manafort was booted from the campaign. So Failed, but, um, I don't know, in a way it brought disrepute, is that a word? It, it gave Trump a bad reputation, opened the crack in the door for him to be hounded by these allegations about ties to Putin right. this whole time, so. And Go ahead. I just, yeah, I think one sort of key takeaway, maybe even a closing thought, is that, you know, Russia, they don't have a preference really for one candidate or the other. They just want to bring down the system. They want to turn us against each other. And so I think the less we do that, the less we play into that, 
the, the stronger our defenses are against Russia. The, a line that I frequently use is that Russia's goal is not conquest, it's chaos. Well, we get an F and they get an A yeah. in that regard, if that's the case. Right. So last thing, um, you've just written a book, and if people like what they hear, and I know they will, they should pick up your book. Give me the title and explain kind of how that fits into the themes we've talked about today. Right, so the title of my book is Why Soldiers Miss War, and it explains my personal journey, so to speak, from being a Air Force Special Operations pilot serving in Iraq and Afghanistan to becoming a conflict journalist. And in the book, I explain something I went through, which I think is common for many veterans, and that's trying to rediscover the sense of purpose and meaning in life, uh, which I thought I had lost when I left the military. And for me, that led me to become a conflict journalist and to go back to war zones over and over again, war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was out on the front lines with the Peshmerga and the battle for Mosul against Islamic State. So I, my life was certainly trending downward, taking these greater and greater risks. And it was not until I met and fell in love with my wife, Lily, the Ukrainian woman, that I was able to sort of rediscover that sense of, of purpose and direction in life, which I thought I had lost in the military. And I, hopefully the takeaway for many people who read the book, not just veterans, but anybody across all walks of life, is that in this day and age where life can get a bit lonely or we can get so engrossed in social media and this political bickering, that oftentimes it is love at the end of the day or relationship with your family or like we were talking about earlier, you know, it could even just be volunteering or something like that which can give purpose to your life. And I think we need to for many people, it's, it's important to find that purpose and meaning, and I think that uh, hopefully that story has a universal message, which is useful for all the readers. Well, I'm glad our paths crossed in 2014. I'm proud to call you a friend and a colleague. Thank you for your service and your wonderful you. reporting. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, everybody. Pass it along if you did. You can subscribe to this one, Full Measure After Hours, or the Cheryl Axon Podcast. Or just listen to these on my website if you don't want to subscribe to anybody. You can go to podcasts and click the arrow right there. So do your own research, make up your own mind, and think for yourself. Thanks for listening.